So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and take it out and open to Philippians. That's where we find ourselves this fall. And this morning we come to Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, as we make our way through this passage or this book, this letter of the Apostle Paul week by week. This is one of the great passages of all of the New Testament. I think I'm allowed to say that as a pastor. This is one of the best. I mean, they're all great, but this is really one of the best. And uh, so I'm excited to study it with you this morning. So I'm going to read for us Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. You can read in your own uh, copy of the scriptures or read on the wall behind me. So this is God's word. Let's give it our attention. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to, the, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray and ask for his help as we look at it together. Jesus, we do ask that you, by the Holy Spirit, would come and speak to our hearts now as we, together for a few minutes, look at this particular part of the Bible. We ask that you would be at work moving us to belief, moving us and capturing our hearts so that we might see Jesus for who he is, a person who is infinitely valuable and worth knowing, a person for whom it is worthwhile for us to leave everything else behind if we can gain him. And God, we pray that that would be true of each of our lives this morning and that we would live as if that's true. And Jesus, we know that normally we don't live that way, even if we've trusted you by faith, even if we call ourselves Christians. And so we ask that by the power of the Spirit, you would help us to more and more faithfully see Jesus for who he really is and orient our lives accordingly. God, be with us now in this time, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. George O'Leary is a uh, college football coach, and he's still around, I think. But in 2001, George O'Leary was offered the job of head coach at the University of Notre Dame. And uh, Notre Dame, as probably most of you know, is sort of a traditional football powerhouse, one of the major programs in all of America, and uh, one of the best jobs you could have if you're in college football coaching. And so O'Leary was offered this job, and he accepted it, but only four days after he had accepted this job, it came out that some things on his resume were inaccurate. 
On his resume, which he had had pretty much unchanged for the last two decades, O'Leary had said that he had a three-year, he was a three-year letterman at the University of New Hampshire, that he had played football and started for three years. But it came out that he had actually never played a single game for the University of New Hampshire. When someone called the school to write a story about him, he had played in two games as a senior, but most of his time had sat on the bench. And so O'Leary, when this came out, offered to Notre Dame to resign immediately. But Notre Dame said, no, 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 let's just make sure that there are no other inaccuracies in your resume. And O'Leary thought, well, uh uh-oh, now that you mention it, not only did I not actually play for New Hampshire, but the school that he claimed to have received his master's degree from was a school called NYU Stony Brook University, which has the unfortunate happenstance of just not existing at all. He had, he had made that school up. It's a non-existent institution that he named after two separate schools that are over 50 miles apart. So when that was discovered, Notre Dame forced O'Leary to resign in scandal. And, you know, if the Internet had been then what it is now, Twitter would have gone ballistic over George O'Leary. It was quite a scandal even then in the college football world. And um, I think O'Leary is still a coach somewhere, but his reputation will never be the same because it came out that he had rather heavily padded his resume. Now, I think that story's interesting, not because it allows us to say, what a moron. I mean, what kind of person would do that and think you're not going to get caught? But it's an interesting story because it points to something that's true for every single one of us in this room today. And that's this. All of us have the natural tendency and desire to want to pad our resumes. That's true of all areas of our lives. That's true professionally. That's true socially. And more to the point, that's also true spiritually. It's true spiritually of every one of us. We all have an innate desire to present ourselves as competent as having achieved something important and as impressive. And we will often, in all kinds of subtle ways, even pad our resumes to appear that way. Maybe not in the way that O'Leary did exactly, but we do it nevertheless. I think that's true. We do this with other people. We do this even in thinking about ourselves, and we most definitely do this in our relationships with God. And this part of Philippians teaches us that our natural desires to pad our resumes socially, professionally, and spiritually is actually very destructive. It's very destructive to our spiritual lives. And really, it's very destructive to our own eternal futures if we don't address that issue. In fact, spiritual resume padding, the Apostle Paul teaches, will cut one off. It will cut one off from the grace of Jesus Christ. It's that significant of an issue. And what Paul is doing in this part of Philippians is warning us, but also highlighting for us that we don't have to live this way. We don't need to pad our resumes in any way whatsoever, but most of all, we don't need to pad our resumes spiritually. Because the good news of Christianity, the good news of the gospel, tells us that God does not look upon us based upon our own spiritual resume or our own spiritual achievement. But in Jesus, God looks on us based on Jesus' spiritual resume. He looks at us based on Jesus' spiritual achievements. It's one of the best things, well, not one of, that is the best thing that you could ever hear, actually. And I hope that it will begin to change you this morning if it hasn't already. 
as we get to Philippians 3, Paul kind of has an awkward transition there in verse 1. He says, finally, as if he's about to wrap things up. But then he begins to warn the Philippian Christians to look out for false teachers. And he calls them some really nasty things, if you'll look at those verses. He says, look out for the dogs. Not a compliment, by the way. Probably never has been a compliment. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What is that all about? Well, what Paul's referring to here is a group of theologians and first century Jewish Christians, well, they weren't actually Christians, but they thought they were, that followed Paul around everywhere he went in his missionary travels. And in every letter that Paul wrote that's now in our New Testament, he refers to these people. They are his theological antagonists. And the New Testament calls them Judaizers. Judaizers. And if you're going to get what's happening in these verses, you've got to understand what the Judaizers were all about. Here's what the Judaizers would do. They would come in after Paul planted a church and had left a few years later, and they would say, we hear that you Christians in this place have believed that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead after he died on a cross for the sins of the world. And we think that's great. It's essential that you believe in Jesus. That's a part of this new faith, this new religion, this little offshoot of Judaism that we're calling the way or Christianity. Jesus is essential, the Judaizers would say, but, listen, but he is not sufficient. He's not sufficient. If you're really going to be acceptable to God, if you're really going to be a part of God's family, you must believe in Jesus, but you also must become Jewish. You must be Judaized, hence the term Judaizers. You have to get circumcised. You have to observe the Jewish festivals and holy days. You have to keep kosher. You have to do all this if God is going to accept you. So it's great that you've believed in Jesus, but there's one more step that you must take if God's really going to accept you. That's what the Judaizers taught. And what Paul says all over the New Testament is that that is, Galatians 1.10, another gospel. It's another gospel. It is antithetical to his message because Paul's message, the message of Christianity, the message of Philippians 3 is this. If you add anything to the grace of Jesus, it is no longer the grace of Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And so Paul is always fired up when he's teaching his churches and teaching his people to ignore and do away with this false teaching of the Judaizers because Paul is concerned that the Judaizers are constantly telling people what really we all naturally love to hear. And that is this. Basically, your spiritual resume, the Judaizer says, has to have two things. It has to say, I believed in Jesus, and it has to say, I became Jewish. And what Paul is concerned to do is to preserve the gospel of God's grace. And that's what he's doing in these verses. And really, he does it by in some ways, getting autobiographical with us. He tells us a little bit of his, of his own story in summing up for us, um, really, the heart of Christianity. And here's the main idea that Paul wants to communicate to you and to me this morning, that the Holy Spirit wants to communicate to us. Here's the point. The value of gaining Jesus Christ renders everything else worthless. That's the main idea. The value of gaining Jesus renders everything else worthless. Two points. Let's go on to the first one. The the surprising worthlessness of gaining everything. So Paul is concerned that the Philippians not be infected with this false anti-gospel toxin that the Judaizers were teaching. That's the context here. 
And the way he does address this with the Philippians is by countering their argument by retelling his own story. And and before we get to Paul's story, you've got to get this about the Judaizers. The Judaizers wanted to be obedient. The Judaizers were concerned about how unholy, stained, and spoiled humans can approach a holy, pure, and unstained God. And that's a good concern to have. That's a valid concern. And the things that these Judaizers demanded of churches in the first century, in and of themselves, were not bad things. They were, in fact, very good things, by and large. Because the Judaizers knew that a holy God cannot be approached by unholy people. Unholiness is unacceptable to God. Their misunderstanding comes, however in thinking about how we can approach a holy God. And that's a critical misunderstanding. You see, the Judaizer says that to some degree or another, we can become acceptable to God based on what we do achieve or earn. Jesus is essential. You've got to have Jesus. Jesus gets you 98% of the way there, but the other 2%, you've got to take that on yourself. And again, 98% really is 0%, according to the gospel and according to Paul. Their critical misunderstanding was how people can be acceptable to God. They said, to some degree, our acceptability before God comes from our own spiritual resume. And so here's what Paul does. He says, okay, let's assume for a second that that is true, that our own spiritual resumes get us before God. Well, then let's just compare resumes. How about that? Here's how I saw myself before I came to know Jesus. Here's my resume. And look at what he does in verse 4b all the way through verse 8. He says, you want to compare human achievement and morality? You want to compare merits and achievements before a holy God? Let's do that, and let's see who comes out on top here. And then he gives us his own spiritual resume. Look there in verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, and here's the summary, I have more. Boom. (laughs) Ace of spades. Paul wins. And then look at what he says. He lists seven things. The first four things are things that he had inherited or that he had by virtue of his birth. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day, he did everything by the book. He was a Jewish Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin. He had a royal line when it came to God's people. And then the last three things, verse 6, are things that he freely chose or strived for. He was zealous. He was more serious about the law as a Pharisee than anything else. All these things, Paul is saying, presented together, give a picture of an amazingly religious, moral, impressive man. In the mind of any ancient Jew, any ancient Jewish family would have wanted their daughter to marry someone just like Paul. He was a religious superstar. He had gained everything as an ancient Jew. He was more religiously committed He was more righteous. He was more faithful. He was more obedient than anyone he knew. And he's not like George O'Leary. He's not exaggerating. He's not making up fake schools. He's not padding his resume. This was true. His spiritual resume was unmatched. He had really achieved all this. But Paul tells us that something has happened to him. Something surprising. Something remarkable, something that turned his entire view of himself and his entire view of God and of others upside down. The way 
that Paul gauged value and worth had been completely altered. The items he lists on his resume have completely changed. What was it that had happened? Here's what had happened. Paul had met Jesus of Nazareth on the road to Damascus. Jesus raised from the dead and now the ruling king of the universe. Paul had had a transformative encounter with the crucified and resurrected Jesus. That's what happened. And that changed everything for him. That's very clear when we see how he views his own resume now after meeting Jesus. Look at verse 7. Whatever gain I had, now I count it as loss. That's not a credit to me. That's something that goes against me. Why? For the sake of Christ. And then he doubles down. Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as, as loss. For his sake, moving forward, I suffer the loss of everything and count them as rubbish. That's a very weak translation, by the way. It means dog poop. Like, literally, that's what the word means. It's rubbish. It's dung. It's scraps on the trash pile. That is what everything I had achieved, all of my religious and spiritual and moral victories amount to after I had met Jesus. Now, think about this. Paul is a circumspect, scholarly man. He's careful with language. He makes up words. He creates nuance. He's logical and thoughtful and careful in the way he words things. But here he says, this is all a bunch of, I'm not going to say it. It's a bunch of junk. Insert whatever, depending on how sanctified you are. Insert what's in your mind there. That's what he says. I mean, that's literally what he says. What would make Paul sort of just throw that out so passionately? Such a circumspect, scholarly, Jewish man. Here's what it was. It was the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. What was it that makes Paul say that gaining everything is a big, huge, steaming pile of manure? It's it's knowing Jesus. What he has found in Jesus makes everything else he has ever achieved look like rubbish. Gaining Jesus rendered Paul's resume worthless. Worse than worthless. Something happened to him that transformed the way he saw value. It transformed what he thought was important. It transformed his own ideas of achievement. Do you really believe, if you're a follower of Jesus, do you really believe that everything you work so hard to achieve and to amass is completely worthless if you've gained Jesus? Do you live like that's true? You know, we know with even a moment's thought that our entire society, the structures of every every part of our world, and really more importantly, the structure of our own hearts is built on the foundation and the system of spiritual achievement. The, The system is that we must amass a resume to get in or we will be left out. That's the way people think. That's the way we think. It's the way our hearts are wired. So let's think about that for a second. We relate to others based on resume. That's obviously true. When I showed up at uh, at college, my first year at Baylor University, um, I I have this vivid memory of my first night in the dorm. And uh, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know my roommate. And it was about 8 o'clock at night, and I was standing in my dorm room by myself, and I looked out the window and down sort of in the, 
in the outdoor lobby in the, in the park in front of our dorm, there was a bunch of guys getting together, like maybe 20 guys were out there because they were about to go out and have fun or do whatever. I didn't know any of those guys. They were all kind of hanging out, sizing each other up. And I remember thinking to myself internally, oh no, am I going to be accepted? Am I going to get in? Am I going to be able to connect with these guys or relate to these guys or be friends with these guys? I don't know if that resonates with any of you, but we all have those sorts of experiences, I would imagine, where you wonder, is this group going to accept me? You know, all of our life is, is oriented around these sort of concentric circles of acceptance. I mean, think about romance and dating. Whew, it's even more that way. You guys are familiar with speed dating, right? Which is, should be a contradiction in terms, by the way. If you're single, don't speed date. Slow date. Um, but speed dating is this idea where you get a minute to like talk to 20 different men or 20 different women. And in one minute, you have to size them up and they have to size you up and see if you're worth giving a card to or another conversation. It's all based on, are we good enough? Have we done enough? Are we going to be accepted? The big question in all of our social lives is how do we get in? And the answer is always wave your resume. The way we view each other is based on resume. The way we relate to ourselves is based on resume. Now, that's less obvious, but just as true as the first idea. You even use your own internal resume to let yourself in. You set standards for yourself. And if you don't measure up, you beat yourself up. And you hate yourself, even if externally people think you're amazing and have achieved amazing things. Um, The pop star Madonna, who has been, you know, one of the transcendent musical superstars for my entire life, 40 years or so. Huge star. She sold millions and millions of albums. She sold out arenas for her concerts. She did an interview some years ago with Vanity Fair magazine. And in that interview... They're asking her sort of about her view of herself. And Madonna is quoted as saying this about her own view of herself. Listen to what she says. She she said, I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. This is one of the most successful people in the world in her field. And she has this internal drive based on her own feelings of inadequacy. This view of ourselves is what leads leads both to depression and despondency or to pride. It's what leads to the sort of type A, driven, unswerving commitment to excellence that captivates a large part of our culture. Our own inner thoughts are dominated by this view of life. I mean, think about it. What happens to you when you get criticized? When someone comes at you with an issue, typically you will get defensive or you will destroy yourself on the inside. And that's because the way you accept yourself, the way you relate to yourself is largely based on your own view of your resume. We either boast in our efforts at righteousness or we condemn and hate ourselves because we don't feel like our righteousness is up to snuff, right? We relate to others that way. We relate to ourselves that way. And here's what else is true. Every single human on the planet by nature relates to God this way. 
We relate to God based on resume. Every single one of us naturally thinks that the way God views us depends on how good or how righteous or how moral or how religious we have been. That largely explains, by the way, the popular belief that all religions are basically the same. And I would agree with that with one exception. All religions basically are the same. Religion as a human enterprise is a big, huge, myriad system of resume construction. But the gospel, the gospel is all about resume destruction. And until you can destroy your own resume, you can't get the gospel. But religion, on the other hand, says if I obey God's rules, if I follow these steps, if I achieve here, God will love me. I will get to nirvana. I will be accepted. I will inherit the earth. But the gospel of Jesus says because God has loved me through Jesus, I now have a new nature. I now have a new life that can actually obey God. And even Christians, even if you believe that Christianity is sort of the way, the truth, the life, even if you believe that, we still, we still approach God with a resume mentality. How do we do that? I want you to listen to me. Here's how we do it. We do this when we think that a relationship with God is fundamentally about amassing as much good as we can and getting rid of as much bad as we can so that God will be minimally happy with us. So that he will be just marginally satisfied with us. By the way, that teaching is the reason why so many of you have left church. It's the reason why so many are leaving church and wanting nothing to do with it. It's because so many of us grew up in church and were taught behavior modification. We were taught how necessary it is to live like a good little Christian. A lot of us grew up in churches. We were were told more about what kind of music to and to not listen to than we were about Jesus. And that stuff is poison. It's spiritually toxic. All we were told was what a big problem our sin is. Listen, listen, Paul always knew that sin was a problem. Paul knew sin was a problem before he met Jesus. He was a Pharisee. Pharisees hate sin. Their whole system is built on getting rid of sin, getting as far away from it as possible. Paul knew sin was a problem. Your biggest problem is not your real, your very real unrighteousness. Your biggest problem is your pretended righteousness. Your biggest problem is not how bad you are. That is not Christianity. Your biggest problem is that you think you're actually pretty good. Your biggest problem is not how many things you've done to get away from God. Your biggest problem is that you think you can do things to get to God. If you think your biggest problem is how bad you are, you have not yet gone deep enough. As the Matrix says, you need to see how deep the rabbit hole goes. The problem is not your very real unrighteousness. It's your own efforts to make up righteousness. Paul isn't giving us a list of bad things here, with the exception of persecution, but at the time he thought that was good. He's giving us his best things. And he's saying they were crap. They were rubbish. When you think Christianity is only about ceasing doing the bad things to get God to be happy with you, you're just going to be a failed Pharisee. You become a Christian when you realize that trying to do good things to please God is what you need to repent of. 
and that you need a completely different sort of righteousness. That's what Paul gained. Paul gained Jesus. Paul gained all the benefits that come with knowing Christ. And so everything else that he had gained was surprisingly worthless. That's the first thing he shows us. Secondly, let's look at the surpassing worth of gaining Christ, verses 9 through 11. Paul tells us that what made all that he had gained in his prior life surprisingly worthless was coming to know and gaining Jesus Christ. Look at what he says there, verse 9. Or verse 8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Jesus. So what does it mean to gain Christ? If it was that transcendent and that important and that transformative for Paul, what does it mean? Well, he tells us in verse 9, it means being found in him. Being found in him. Well, what does that mean? Well, Paul fleshes it out there in the next few verses. He tells us that gaining Jesus, being found in Jesus, is the most valuable thing in the world, the only thing worth pursuing, and it consists of three big, huge things. First, verse 9, it consists of gaining his righteous status. Look at that. Being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. Okay, so the idea of our resumes having to get us in with God. That idea goes out the door when we are found in Jesus. This verse is a summary of Christianity. This verse is a summary of the book of Romans, a summary of the book of Galatians. It's the heart of the gospel. And here it is. Here is the beauty of the good news of Jesus. When we gain Jesus by faith, when you believe Jesus, you gain Jesus' righteousness and can stop trying to get our own. Now that revolutionized Paul's life. Look, Look at what he says. Being found in Christ means that he now depends not on gaining his own righteousness, which is what he had worked so hard towards, but now he depends not on a righteousness that comes through his own obedience, that comes from the law, he writes, but he now depends on the righteousness of Jesus freely given to him by faith. Listen, when you believe that Jesus Christ died on a wooden cross to take on your sin, He substituted himself on your place and pays the debt for your sin. And when you believe that he was raised from the dead, when you accept that to be true, that you believe it personally for you in your life, you receive freely from God the righteous resume, the righteous status of Jesus. So that when God looks at you as an individual person, when you die, And you go before God, and God looks at you, God will not see your failures and your successes. God will see Jesus' success. You have, before God, by faith, a just as if you had never sinned status. God looks at you in the exact same way that He looks at Jesus Christ. That's how connected you are to Him. Your status is in no way dependent upon your failures, and it's especially in no way dependent upon your successes. Because your successes, your successes are rubbish. 
Your status is 100% in every way dependent upon Jesus' perfect and righteous life. He gives you what he earned because we can't earn it. All that we earn is condemnation and death. You are as righteous before the judgment seat of God as Jesus. That brings freedom from the self-defeating effort of trying to gain our own righteousness, of trying to get in with God based on our own resume. You are completely covered. You're completely caught up in Jesus' perfection, in Jesus' righteous life given to you freely. This summer, uh, we took a quick little family trip down to Houston, and one night we went to an Astros game, World Series, right? Uh, they're doing great. And uh, at the Astros game, you know, out in the lobby of the stadium, they have these pictures of, like, real life-size Astros players, and it would show, like, one of the outfielders, like, jumping up on a wall, and one of the pitchers, like, in full throwing motion sequence, and you could kind of compare yourself to him. And so we took pictures of our kids trying to do that. And they also have in another part of the park, you know, those kind of cutout images, like it would show Jose Altuve or one of the other Astros, their body, and you could kind of get behind it and put your face in there. And you're like, man, look at me. Everybody takes pictures. I'm a real Astro. I'm, I'm Jose Altuve. I'm Carlos Correa. Listen, that's the gospel. Jesus completely covers you. <laughs> when God looks at you, it's like you're standing behind this. It's not a cardboard image of Jesus. It's the real Jesus. And, and he judges you based on what Jesus has done, not based on what you have done. And, and the only way you can kind of get yourself behind that is when you realize that you don't want God to judge you based on what you've done. If that's where you are, that you haven't yet gotten it, you don't know how deep the rabbit hole goes. You've got to get behind Jesus because he freely gives you his righteous status. That's what it means to be found in him. Second, it means gaining his resurrection power. Look at verse 10. We get his righteousness. It comes through faith. It's free. And then secondly, that I may know him, verse 10, and the power of his resurrection. Okay, man. We not only gain Jesus' righteous status before God, but we gain the real resurrection power of Jesus' own life now. Not in the future, now. Colossians 3.1 says that since we have been raised with Christ, let, our, let us set our mind on the things that are above. In other words, right now, if you've trusted Christ, you have resident within you the same exact power that rose Jesus from the grave, the same power that made his brain stem start functioning again, the same power that turned on his nervous system after it had been dead, the same power that caused his lungs to start taking in oxygen, the same power that made his blood begin to flow after it had stopped for three days, that power lives in you now, right now. And so you can actually lay aside your resume and begin to live for God and love God and serve God based on what Jesus has done and not based on what you think you need to do. You gain his, righteous, his resurrection power. You gain his righteous status. Last thing, you gain his redemptive suffering. Verse 11 or verse 10. I know him in the power of the resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now, that might not sound like good news <laughs> at first blush, but that's actually really good news. Here's what Paul's saying. Think about this. Every single scrap of suffering that we will ever undergo is going to be used by God to make us more like Jesus. Every single scrap of suffering 
that we will ever endure is used by God to move us down the pathway of attaining the resurrection of the dead. Every bit of our suffering is designed to follow the pattern of Jesus' suffering, which means that every single piece of our pain is taking us further down the road to resurrection, to redemption, to peace, to life, to the joy set before us. Listen, okay, you can't do justice to this text, but can you maybe see what Paul saw when he met Jesus Christ? Meeting Jesus requires you to toss your resume. Meeting Jesus requires you to, to throw away everything that you once thought was valuable. It requires you to quit trying to achieve what you will never be able to achieve. It requires you to lay down your thinking that you have the ability to stand before God and that maybe you'll be 51% good, 41% bad, or 49% bad. Meeting Jesus requires that you stop trying to pad your resume. Meeting Jesus frees you to rest in his resume instead. And God gives us all of that for free. Man, I know I'm past time, I don't care. That'll change the way you think about God. Let me just close with this story. Um, Marianne and I went through a class a number of years ago that was really powerful in helping us to understand these ideas better, and this story stuck with me. It's a story that this woman tells who um, had experienced a lot of pain in her life and realized as she was going through this class that she viewed God in the, the same way that she viewed her earthly father and his failures. And she tells this story. She tells a story about when she was a little girl. She saw her older sister... And her older sister liked to do nice little things for their dad, who worked hard sort of as a business professional. And her older sister would take her dad's white shirts, and after they came out of the laundry, and would go hang them out on a clothesline to dry the shirts. And, and she, as the younger sister, thought, that's a nice thing to do for my daddy. I want to do the same thing. And so she would take her dad's shirt, and she would go out to the clothesline, but she wasn't tall enough to reach the clothesline pins yet. And so she looked around to see where she could hang her dad's shirt, and she saw an old rusty wheelbarrow in the yard. And so she went and she clipped her dad's shirt to the handle of this wheelbarrow so the white shirt was laying against this rusty, dirty wheelbarrow. And when her dad came home, he saw that shirt and he saw its stains. He saw its marks. He thought, who ruined my shirt? And he got very, very angry with her and he berated her and he screamed at her and he told her, don't you ever touch my shirt again. And that girl realized that ever since that moment, she had really viewed her heavenly father in the same way she viewed her earthly father in that moment. That she would try and try and try, but the best she could do was put her shirt on a rusty wheelbarrow. And the heavenly father would say, you are not good enough. And you know what the gospel says? Here's what the gospel says. The gospel says that our best efforts are like putting a terrible shirt on some terrible dirty wheelbarrow but the the dad comes home and he looks at the shirt and he takes the shirt off the clip and he says thank you honey I love you and then he puts the shirt on and he wears it to work and when someone says what's the deal with your shirt they say look at what my little girl did for me let me tell you how much she loves me let me tell you how much I love her When God looks at you, he sees you as perfectly righteous. Because when he looks at you, he sees you as connected with Jesus. And so everything you do for him, 
even our meager attempts at righteousness are connected to everything Jesus has done for him. That's what God is really like. That's what he's really like. If that's true, then gaining, gaining everything is surprisingly worthless. But gaining Jesus is everything. Let's pray.